Hold your breath. Make a wish. Now count to three. Welcome to episode two of the Atlanta Jazz Notes podcast, where we profile the many amazing people who make up the Atlanta jazz scene. I'm your host, Matt Miller. This week, I had the chance to interview the great trumpeter, singer, and band leader Joe Granston. The legendary singer Smokey Robinson said of Joe that he, quote, has an innate ability to connect with his audience. His singing and trumpet playing are world class. Throw in his 16-piece big band, you have something very special. I couldn't agree more. What we'll see will defy In this episode, Joe talks about trumpet technique, learning to play jazz, life during the pandemic, the jazz scene in New York and Atlanta, developing his career, and much more. Thank, thank you so much. I really appreciate the, your time. I know you're busy. If you don't mind, I'll ask you just about your about your life and music. Um, starting at the beginning, I guess. So you got, you grew up in a family of musicians. I did, man. Um, my father's a great jazz piano player and singer. My uncle was on Broadway his whole life. Um, his brother, my other uncle, my uncle Eddie, great uh, singer and bass player in New York City, and uh, later in life turned. Uh, contractor and contracted like the Rainbow Room and, and different shows, the Algonquin uh, Bar, on, uh, I think that's on 59th Street, but it was very heavy in the music scene in, in, in New York City. So um, on both sides of the family, my grandfather, my father's father was a great trumpet player and played in bands like um, Benny Goodman and, and Glenn Miller, you know, sat in with those bands when they would come through New York, but yeah, whole, whole career. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was, it was certainly in the family and I knew wow. what I was going to do. That's so cool. And, and were you guys, did you guys grow up in the city or were you in, were you in Westchester or were you a little north of the city? Where did you grow up? I have a lot of family in Westchester, but I was, I was born in um, basically Yonkers, just north of Manhattan. Okay. Spent a bunch of years in Hopewell Junction, which is, uh, um, I don't know, it's probably an hour north of New York City. Beautiful, beautiful little town. But, but most of my life, most of my childhood was Buffalo, New York. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. And what was it? What was the music scene like there? Was it pretty happy? I know there, there are some famous people from that area yeah it was killing it was killing the buffalo jazz scene was very hip um, um all kinds of great players from dave chavon uh, jeff jarvis sam noto don menza was there for a long time Bobby. i mean i was a kid but my father was on that scene you know and, and played gigs all over buffalo and, and and was constantly bringing me out to these jam sessions and letting me sit in uh, so it was a really really great experience there was a big band there um phil sims Phil Sims and the Buffalo Brass, mm-hmm. uh, been with them and, and play a little bit, but it was made up of all the top musicians in Buffalo at the time. So I had a great childhood and uh, as far as being exposed to this music. Yeah. And that was and that's Chuck Mangione is, is from Buffalo. Is that right? I don't know if he's from Buffalo or Rochester. I think he's from Rochester. Oh, Rochester. Yeah, of course. It's literally 45 minutes away. I mean, it's so right it's, down. Gotcha. So kind of similar, a similar scene. Um, so what? So like, aside from family members, who were the first people you listened to that you were really blown away by, uh, like musically? What was an album or a live show? Well, I mean, there was always there was always um, the greats were always being played in the house, uh, from Sinatra to Nat King Cole, uh, Miles Davis. Uh, they, my my folks always had that that type of music on. So, and I would listen to it and I would enjoy it, but it wasn't something that really, um, you know, you know, I was eight, I was seven, I was six years old, but when I was um, probably closer to 13 or 14, my father came home with a, a 
Chet Baker record, a new Chet Baker record called Diane, which was a duo record with Paul Bly. Yeah. Or is it Paul Blay? Paul Bly or Paul Blay? Yeah, I think it's Paul Blay, but yeah. I, I, that's a great album. I love that album. Man, I heard that and it was on vinyl. Before. Yeah. This is 1985, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was on my bed, my, my pillow, when I came home from school. My father said, listen to this. He had heard it on the uh, jazz radio station that day. He had heard a cut. And he said, my son would love this. So I put it on and, and I just, I was transformed instantly to, uh, to wanting to become a jazz musician. I, I probably listened to that record 500 times. And, and yeah. I immediately sat down with my horn, knowing nothing about keys, knowing nothing about key signatures, chord changes or anything, and tried to pick out the pretty notes that Chet was playing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and slowly, slowly, very slowly developed a little bit of an ear and uh, so that was kind of the record that did it for me. That one, and there was another one that my grandfather had left me when he passed away called, uh, it's a Bobby Hackett record, mm-hmm. called The Most Beautiful Horn in the World. And Bobby's playing the cornet and just playing these gorgeous American songbook standards. Not not a whole lot of impro- improvisation, but just the melody with some embellishments. And I, I just, I couldn't believe how it struck me. It was like a drug. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, that's, that's, I'm always interested in people's, initial experiences with music and how they kind of figured out in their like how they figured out a process to to approach jazz were you were you just listening to these albums and figuring stuff out did you have a really great teacher there or were you kind of self-taught well at that point i was i was self-taught i mean i was in the band at school and Mm -hmm. i always had good teachers but i I, um, was so in love with the trumpet at this point that i i took it upon myself to 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 try to become good in other words i practiced all day long and I practiced um, what I was told to practice, but I practiced incorrectly. Or, or maybe a better way to put it is I, I, I never let the muscle relax and, and rest. I just kept practicing and I developed all these bad habits uh, where my mouthpiece would slide down and, and dig into the red part of my lip. And that's how I played trumpet, mostly all the way through college. And, and I was putting so many hours in that I was good enough to, uh, to, to play first trumpet in the band and, and you know win some awards here or there or, or be known as a, a young guy with a little bit of jazz knowledge but i was really damaging my lip you know, mm. it was about 21 or 22 maybe later 23 i had to stop for almost a year and relearn to play so wow. i i did have good teachers and uh, but nobody ever seemed to catch the fact that i was i was i was playing like uh, what they would call way too low you know playing mm. on the bed. and it was just from just from uh i just i just I don't know if you if you put it on your face the right way at the beginning you might be in you might be in good shape but I was just trying everything to play those high notes like Maynard Ferguson and those pretty notes like Chet Baker and and wanted to sound like Miles I loved it all Raphael Mendez and I kind of, I kind of did a little damage you know but, interesting um, yeah I have a lot of friends I've I've talked to a lot of other trumpet playing friends who have mm-hmm. the same same issue had to had to take take a whole rebuild period which I can only imagine how frustrating that is when you're when you feel like you're making progress and having to sound bad again you know <laughs> you know to, to relearn you have to sound bad for a while <laughs> it was career ending i mean it was really I, I, I had come back i was on the road for a year with tommy dorsey's orchestra and i was playing fourth trumpet and and there wasn't a lot of demand on that book for anything in the upper register or any kind of um ridiculous endurance like you might have to do if you're playing a classical trumpet concerto it was just playing, playing, playing the fourth book. So I got away with it and I sounded okay on it. But when I came back, I just, I, I was sick of it. I was tired of, now I was in my twenties and, and I wasn't really progressing. My jazz shops were getting better. I was learning more about chords and harmony, but I couldn't get through a, a, a characteristic study in, a, in, in the Arvin book, for instance. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to see um, me and uh, Mike Berry. I don't know if you know Mike Berry. I don't. To Atlanta after he left, but he played lead in my big band for a while. He's okay. just a, a monster trumpet player, whether it's legit music or big band music or jazz or, or pop. You know, he plays lead trumpet. Um, him and I went to see Vinnie DiMartino in uh, Kentucky, and Vince DiMartino's you know, arguably one of the greatest trumpet players on the planet and certainly one of the greatest teachers. And and Mike knew him. I had met him before, but Mike knew him and said, let's go take a lesson with Vinny. And uh, Mike went in and spent an hour and a half with Vinny and I kind of stood outside the door and listened. And then I went in and had an hour with Vinny and, and Vinny looked at my chops right away and he said, dude, you're in trouble. Really? And he could recognize that I had put time in. He could recognize I had technique and I had, a, uh, you know, some sort of uh, feel for the music. But he said, you're never going to, you're never going to really get there on this instrument if you don't move that mouthpiece up off the red. And I said, good, yeah, I'll start tomorrow. He said, yeah, but it's going to take it's yeah. a memory. It's like changing your golf swing. Mm-hmm. And I was dedicated. I went home. I was living with my parents. I had moved from New York City to uh, Atlanta. My mom and dad had transferred here. And I sat in that basement for hours every day. And uh, and, and this time I took rests in between practicing. I cried a lot. And, yeah. And I was horrible. And even after six months, I, I finally had a, an embouchure that was above the red and I could play, but you know, three, four, five minutes into playing, it would want to slide right back down to where that comfortable spot was. And, and the dedication it took to, I mean, this is like, see, I'm almost 50, I'm 49. So we're talking years and years ago. And to this day, if I get really worn out, I can feel it wanting to go back. Start to slip. That's how dangerous that muscle memory is. That's crazy. Yeah. And it's on trumpet. I mean, on saxophone, there's a lot more, you know, you can be a little more idiosyncratic in your, in your embouchure. There's all different styles. I mean, essentially people have the same, you know, the great players have a similar look, but it is crazy. It's, it's the trumpet is so much, it's unforgiving. You know, I find. Yeah. You know, a lot of French horn, same way. Mm-hmm. Trombone, trombone, you know, the mouthpiece is bigger. So you're basically going to cover, I mean, you know, you're going to cover your, your, cause you got, I mean, the, the, the fleshy part has to vibrate. Mm-hmm. The upper lip, you know. I've seen some trumpet players like Woody Shaw. He would he would anchor the mouthpiece on the bottom lip, and that's kind of okay because you can still get this top part to buzz. But I was I was pushing into the red and forcing that red part to 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 vibrate so I could screech out these high notes for like a minute, <laughs> and then I'd have to wait until all the blood flowed back in. It was just it was, and, and I could trick people. I mean, I could I could get away with it, especially in high school and, and college. You know, you lay out for eight bars in a big band shout course, and then you come in on some stupid high note you know (laughs) great but it was it was and i knew it back then too by the way i knew Mm -hmm. that something was wrong i knew that i was to put in this much time and 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 not be progressing was was, it'd be like you know running six miles a day you don't lose a pound something's something's up yeah Yeah. but i got eventually i got it together and and uh and during this 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 time we've had quarantined at home basically i put a lot of time back in the fundamentals that i haven't done in 25 years that's cool yeah i was gonna ask you about that because it's just it's it's such a drastic change and for someone like you who's i mean probably the busiest person in atlanta playing playing this music it's like how do you how do you transition from being every night playing to being not booked it was was it a difficult transition yeah yeah it was difficult i didn't think it would be but i i I, you know i played 350 gigs last year (laughs) and uh and and happy to do it, you know. I mean, I was very tired and, and working every single night, but but most of my work um, is in in the southeast in Atlanta, drivable, you know. So I, I really wanted to. I made a conscious several years ago when I started my big band that I wanted to 
work a lot, but I wanted to stay close to home. I wanted to be with my, my wife and son as much as possible. I didn't really want to go to, you know, see the world. I kind of had done that with the Glenn Miller and Tommy Dorsey Orchestra. So I, I put a lot of time in locally and, and it, it kind of paid off. But now I had trouble saying no, you know, and, and I, I did everything and I, I would try to save money. And But I was always home every night, you know, so I might have traveled about a, a month per year, which is not that bad for, mm -hmm. for gigs, right? Oh, sure. But when we got... Um, I guess it was early March. When did we finally get? It was probably like March 14th around then when it started to really shut down. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, you know, you know, it's hard to talk about this because so many people were, um, you know, ill and, and people were dying. It was, yeah. So, so there's no, there's no happy side to it. But for me, there was this, this ability to rest finally. Sure. And, and stay home and, and not get home at 3 a.m. or 2 a.m. or 1 a.m. from some late night gigs. So for the first month, it was almost like vacation. Uh, you know, once again, not not excusing the fact that there was so much tragedy out there in the world. You know, my family and I, we were praying every day for, for everybody, including ourselves. But I was able to sleep. Uh, we would have a little cocktail hour every day, my wife and I, I. I got a big green egg, man. I started cooking on that. and That's cool. And I had a routine every morning. I, I'd play long tones for an hour, and then I'd do my scales. And, and um, um, I, I happen to be friends with uh, Kenny G, the great saxophone player. And Kenny would send me little clips of him playing um, a lick or two that he's been working on. And yeah. my job was to learn that lick and then send him one. So we were kind of going back and forth. That's and cool. It was, yeah, it was kind of fun. It was kind of a nice little challenge. And, and uh, he he's so incredible. He would he would whatever lick I would play, like something I stole from Freddie or something I stole from Clifford, he'd have it the next day. And then he'd send me something. And, and his usually once that he, he came up with, he wrote. Yeah. And I, man, it would take me two weeks. Really? That's, that's, that's cool. I mean, it's, I, I think something about doing things on different instruments is really helpful too. You know, him playing something on trumpet and then you playing something from sax. I mean, it's just, I find that very valuable. It just didn't lay under my fingers the way I, I wanted it to, but then eventually I would get it and then he'd send me a harder one. So. <laughs> But it, that was kind of the routine for, for a long time. I mean, Kenny and I didn't do that every day, but we did that quite a bit. And then I would, I would play some jazz. I'd play a little piano. I'd go to the gym. And after, after two or three weeks, my body finally, you know, I finally was, was back, to, back to normal. And now, now it's like, now I'm all screwed up again. I, you know, like, <laughs> enough's enough, man. I want to get to work. Yeah, but things are, things are starting to pick up a little bit for you. I've seen, seen you out there playing. I'm sure it's not to the same extent as before, but... Yeah, there's there's little things popping up here and there that are that are kind of getting me out, getting me going. I, I think the the one danger with this whole um, stay at home thing is is becoming lazy. You know, I mean, it, it, it was a break probably for everybody for a while. It was a break, except for the folks that were struggling. You know, with, with this disease, with this virus. I mean, but um, getting lazy is 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 there. It's in my head. You know, it's so easy to just do nothing. Yeah. But now, I mean, you know, you got to make a living, you got to eat. I mean, the bills are just piling up, you know, it's yeah. like scary. But I am, I am fortunate. Kenny Banks and I have a couple things, you know, every week or so that we get to do, make a little make a little cake. Sure, sure. Yeah, and you guys are so great together. It's one of my favorite favorite acts of all time is you guys playing together. It's awesome. Um, I want to ask you, I mean, I want to ask you about that collaboration. I want to ask you about your, your band as well, the kind of the formation of it and how it's developed over, I guess it's been about 10 years or more than 10 years since you guys formed? Yeah, we, you know, my first, my first experience with having my own big band was my, my Christmas record that I did. And I, I think it was 2006. 
my first uh, uh, basically record company asked us to do a big band record. And uh, so I put a band together. We did the record and then we would get little spot gigs here and there. But it wasn't until about 11 years ago or 12 years ago where I, I started that, that kind of residency at Cafe 290 here in Atlanta, which was uh, twice a month, every first and third Monday. And that's when things started to pick up for the band and, and we started uh, dedicating um, a lot of time to West Bundaberg writing charts for us. And eventually Mike Walton and, and Marla Feeney and Eric Alexander, the uh, great trombone player here in town. A lot of charts were written for us via those folks. And and I, maybe a year or two into it, knew that this was this was going to be big in this town. I mean, as far as the jazz scene is concerned, I mean, we were getting 180 people every Monday we played there. I mean, you couldn't move in the place for years. Yeah. Uh, WCOK was streaming it live for a while. Um, so uh, it was it was an experience for me that that was. Uh, exciting but difficult. I, I certainly had to change the way I played a little bit. I had to change the way I sing because I always sang real quiet. I tried to, you know, I kind of tried to emulate Chet Baker for a long time, uh, which was a good way to, to slide into singing because you can get away with a lot of stuff when you're almost whispering, right? Yeah, sure. But now I'm in front of a big band and I'm singing kind of Sinatra-ish arrangements or, or American songbook things with horns behind me and I had to learn how to sing different and I would sing along with uh, Dean Martin and Nat King Cole records and, and try to fill my voice out a little bit. And it, and it took a while. I lost my voice so much during those first few years and, and just somehow made it through the gigs. Um, the trumpet plan changed quite a bit. I had to brighten my sound up a little bit maybe to, to get over top of the big band. Uh, my band is, has always had the, the, the most ridiculous brass section, you know. Yeah, they do. <laughs> changes here and there with, with different personnel, but it's always the top guys and, and and they can play with the most amazing dynamics but when they want to roar and i'm playing trumpet on top of them man i gotta hug that mic you know so oh totally totally there, there was a lot involved with getting that thing going but i'm so glad i did it and i hope we can get back to working again oh i'm sure you will i'm sure and i talked to i talked to one time i talked to jeff hayden about that a little bit about the development how you because you he was talking about how you just work so hard on your vocal stuff uh, to develop that, to make it as strong as it is now in that process. So you really, I mean, it was a, it must have taken you, it took years, I'm sure, to really develop it to the point that it's at now. It took a long time. And, and, and it wasn't until recently that I think people um, uh, would even say I was a singer. You know, I'm certainly not a singer like 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 a Carmen Bradford, you know, or uh, Audrey Shakir, any of those folks. But, but I can carry a tune and I can sing fairly in tune. And I, and I feel like I have a nice um, way of phrasing these melodies. But to your point, I, I mean, I would. I, there's a record called um, Frank Sinatra in the wee small hours of the morning, where he's singing all ballads with an orchestra, a small orchestra, and his phrases were so drawn out and so long. And I would put that, and I have a vinyl record player, and I would put that record on side A, and I would sing the whole side A with him, and I would try to hold my notes as long as he held them, which was very difficult. And I, I mean, I'm a brass player, so you think my lungs would be, but, but there's no resistance when you're singing. Yeah, exactly. So. Would just run out of air and then i would try to color the end of the note with the vibrato like he would some people vibrato on, on the entire note like like uh, tony bennett or harry connick jr does that too and it's just it's just beautiful but i kind of liked how frank would hold the note straight and then at the end kind of color it so i tried that and and then i would uh, take a break play some trumpet and then turn it over and do side b and i did that for two years uh, barely missing a day you know wow. and it really helped my voice it really yeah. Open up my voice, and, and uh, then I took a few lessons from uh, Catherine Dunn, wonderful 
more of an operatic uh, uh, vocal coach, and she she was able to kind of get me more here than than here. I was singing yeah. on my throat once again. Another example. I I took it upon myself to to be great, and I never got there. I ended up doing shit wrong. Excuse me. <laughs> you know, I ended no, up cool. singing right here on my throat, which you're not supposed to do. And of course, I didn't know that. I would just sing all day, and then go play a gig and sing, and then have a scotch or two, and then sing yeah. again. I'm losing my voice. Why am I losing my voice? I'm doing it now. I'm talking right on my throat. So she got she got me to kind of come up here and pay attention to getting getting off my throat. Peggy Still, if you know Peggy Still, another know. wonderful uh, musician in town, uh, producer, uh, vocalist, piano player, educator. She does it all. She sat me down one day too because she noticed I was struggling on a gig, and she said, "I know what you're doing wrong." Yeah. She 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 cleared me up. So that's that's why I have such a. Uh, newfound love for for music education and not that i didn't my wife's a great teacher at the love yeah school, teacher but you can you can do things wrong you know exactly you right you need a coach to do. and a great coach can kind of can see those things that are just really these one stumbling block that's kind of holding you back you know some people may just may just gloss over it but a great teacher is going to be just hone in on those little things that are going to make the you know the next step that possible um that's really cool. Um, so just in terms of your biography, I just want to just make, jump back a little bit. Like you played with Tommy Dorsey band and the Glenn Miller band. Like this is in your, in your 20s. And then were you moved to New York City in your 20s too. Is that right? When I, I went to college at Fredonia State College, which is outside of Buffalo, New York, south of Buffalo. Wonderful place right on Lake Erie. And uh, I did two years there. And after my second year, halfway through my second year, uh, my good friend and teacher, great friend now, Jeff Jarvis, I think uh, Jeff had gotten a call to play with the, the Dorsey Band and go on the road. And Jeff was the owner of Kendor Publishing Company, and he had a big career, and he, he wasn't about to leave that to go on the road. So he, he suggested me, one of his students, and uh, and then a guy named Dennis Trebuzzi, who's a, who's a world-class lead trumper, trumpet player in Buffalo, also kind of went to bat for me. So I went out with Dorsey. I quit college, and I went out with Dorsey, and, and uh, did, did a year with them, uh, did pretty well. You know, it, it took me a while to, I almost got fired at one point because I was messing around too much, but I did a year with that band. And when, when I was out there, my mom and dad moved here gotcha. from Buffalo. So when I quit the Dorsey band, I had to make a decision. Um, and I decided to finish college at Georgia state with, uh, Dr. Vernick, Gordon Vernick and yeah. Dr. Hayden, Jeff Hayden. And, uh, when college ended two years later, I bolted to Manhattan and I lived there. Oh. Uh, as a 23 year old man, it was just the greatest time of my life. Oh, sure. Sure. And you had it. Which was it again? I, I missed that. What was the number? Uh, 94th Street in Central Park West. Oh, that's a great place. Yeah, it's a great place to be. Street from uh, Lutzabaka. Oh, wow. Really? Toshiko. Yeah, I think they were still together. Wow. But yeah, he would practice and I would hear him and I would practice hoping he'd say, hey, come sit in with the band. <laughs> You could hear him probably around the block. His sound is such a—he's such a huge sound. <laughs> That's really cool. Um, so that so you're there, and you had a you had a band in New York with like um, was it Joe Cohn and who else? Some, Joe was, Cohn and, and Matt Hughes. Uh, that was a little later. That the, the, my first kind of stint in New York was uh, up on 94th Street, and Brian Lopes and I were roommates. Brian's a great Atlanta tenor player, played sure. with orchestra, and, and we moved up there together, and um, we would walk down to Smalls almost every night, which was six miles or something. I oh, it's far, yeah. <laughs> forever. And one night I was in there and, and uh, Joe Magnarelli was playing. It was his gig. And uh, it was probably my second week in New York. 
and I remember hearing him play and just going, oh my God, that, that's, that's what I want to sound like. That's, that's how I want to play. You know, he had so much Kenny Dorham in his sound and, and, and um, Fats Navarro and all the greats, but, but something stuck out out of all the other trumpet players in New York, something about Joe really hit me. And then I went that weekend, I got a club date. My first gig in New York was a, a wedding gig. And in New York, your wedding gigs can be continuous. They can be five hours long, you know, and, and you usually drive out to New Jersey or you go to Connecticut to play these wedding gigs or Long Island. And uh, the first hour is cocktail hour, so you're playing jazz, right? And then and then it goes into all that other stuff that, that we hope we don't have to do for the rest of our lives, right? <laughs> yeah, right. But I'll never forget that the band leader called uh, Blue Bossa. Now, remember, I had just graduated Georgia State, and I had uh, been on the road with Tommy Dorsey. I was a professional trumpet player. I thought I was pretty good, right? And he called Blue Bossa, and I knew the song. But uh, what is it normally in G minor? Uh, yeah, right. Oh, that's usually in uh, C minor. C minor. And he called it in like A minor or something. Yeah. I had no idea what that meant. I mean, I, really? I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't. I, I was trying to do math in my head. Like, where does the melody start? Yeah. I was so disgusted with myself. Because if we didn't see minor, boy, I could burn. I could play my seven licks that I'd learned. <laughs> and I went home that night after that gig and walked down to Smalls and, and listened to Joe play again. And I'll never forget saying to Joe after the gig, Joe, Joe kind of took a liking to me. We became friends. And I said, Joe, why can't I play like you? You know, I, I have every Charlie Parker Omni book and every transcription book in the world. I, I, you know, I've, I've learned every Freddie Hubbard solo. I can play them all. And he said, uh, he said, go home tonight and throw every book out. I said, what are you crazy? He said, no, throw every book out. And he said, close your eyes and put on a damn record and learn to play what they're playing. You know, now I had done that with the Chet record, but the Chet record wasn't really more uh, so much about language. It was more about just playing pretty little phrases, right? Not that Chet Baker didn't have an immense amount of jazz language, but that particular record is mostly ballads, and he's playing pretty things here and there that I fell in love with. But but what Joe was trying to get me to do was learn the language of jazz, which I really didn't know other than yeah. a couple. And I went home and I I did what he said. I trusted him, and I threw it. I threw everything away. I remember Brian Lopes was like, "What are you doing, man?" <laughs> I'm throwing it all out, and I put on uh, what's the Blakey record with. Um, with uh three blind mice and all those oh yeah is it free for all or is it a different one or uh i'm skipping now but that's right with freddie and with wayne and yeah and i put that on and and i think freddie played blue moon on that one the ballad yeah. and i remember that cadenza at the end and i always liked it and i said i'm gonna figure out how to play this and i transcribed it and it took me a week you know which which you know it, it should it should take me an hour, you know. It should take me two hours, you know. It's not that long, mm -hmm. but I did it. I did it by ear, and then and then I did another one by ear, and then another one, and I started developing an ear and getting better, and it was so exciting. And I would tell Joe, and he would kind of laugh, you know, and, and, and be like, "Yeah, man." But but basically, I started to learn how to speak the language, which was something that I skipped right over again in my in my quest to. to and not necessarily shortcuts, but to get there quick, right? Sure, sure. How important was that lesson from from Mags, as we call him, right? It was yeah, one of the greatest lessons I ever learned. Absolutely, and that's it's similar. I mean, all the people I've been talking to too, the great these great improvisers like yourself, they had that epiphany where it's it's all about your ear. You know, you just or you know, something. It just when they, once they trust trust that process, they seem to have success. And I guess, I mean, what really is striking about your playing to me is like your um, your sound is so beautiful. So I guess you've de you develop that 
in your early days and your love of lyricism and stuff like that and also playing with a strong band like that but then also developing that language which i guess you know really results in a distinctive sound yeah i mean that's that's kind of what it's all about i mean you know when you when you think about it when you when you're an infant your parents don't get a book out and show you how to say yes and no and mama and dada they just say it around the house eventually you hear it and if they're from the south you hear the dialect and you and you actually sound like them if they're from the north you hear the dialect if you're mm -hmm from a different country here so you you learn by ear and and if you if you learn this music by ear then you can can communicate through this music if, if, if you learn it through a book it goes in your eyes but it never really goes into your heart and soul you know yeah, and sometimes that can be the danger if you don't if you don't um uh, approach it the right way you know there's nothing wrong with you gotta be able to read right sure. but there's nothing wrong with that but you really really need to open your ears up and do that. So I, that all my, all my students have to transcribe constantly. Yeah. I still do it. I've been doing a lot of it lately. Do you write it? Do you write it out now when you, when you transcribe or do you just do it by ear and just move on? Write it out. I, I transcribed that whole uh, Blue Mitchell Blues Moods record. And That's I, a great one. Yeah. And I bought a manuscript paper. This I'm going way back now. Yeah. I wrote the whole thing out as neatly as I could with dynamics and little dots if it was a short note or whatever. Um, now I probably, I, I wouldn't unless it was a real long solo and I couldn't recall the whole thing. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's anything wrong with writing it down. I think that's fine. I mean, you know, somebody asked me the other day about singing and, I, and how do you remember all the lyrics? And, you know, Sinatra would write the lyrics down. He wouldn't necessarily read them off the manuscript uh, unless he was in a session. You want to make sure he got every word right. But, but if he was flying from one city to the next and he was going to sing a song that he wasn't that familiar with, he would write it down over and over again, the lyrics. I think that's very positive to that but you know it's all about your ear I yeah think. are you are you a believer in, in um, learning the lyrics to a song if you're going to play it especially like a ballad or something like that on trumpet would you make sure i know a lot of people say that's very essential to yeah the lyrics. I, I i am i became that way after i started singing before i started singing i didn't think you know that that was that important you know my mother was always like, you should sing, you should sing. You say, ah, come on, I don't want to sing, I want to play, man. I want to groove, I want to, I want to play with some fire. And, and then I sang one time because they were going to fire us if we didn't hire a singer. And, and they didn't want to give us any more money. So I just said, I'll sing. And boy, did the crowd dig it, you know? I mean, not, not me, not my voice, but hearing the lyrics of these songs. Sure. And so did I. First, one of the first songs I learned was I'm Old Fashioned. It's a great one, yeah. Johnny Mercer, right? and I was like, "Wow, these these words are great." I mean, I played the song a bunch, but had no idea what it was about. So yeah, so I wouldn't say I do it for every song. Like 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 the other day, I had a, a little recording session on a Herbie Hancock song, um, "Butterfly." I think it was called "Butterfly," and there's yeah. lyrics, and I I didn't sit down and learn the lyrics. I should have, but gotcha. Because um, that, that's something that struck me about your playing too, is just the lyricism of your trumpet playing too, just like your ability to tell a story and just have a, you know, clear, concise, like musical ideas rather than just playing a bunch of stuff. You know, it's just, it's, um, just, it's, it's really impressive. Um, I want to ask you about, in addition to being a great musician, I've never met anyone. I don't think who's as good at the business end of music as you, how do you, how do you approach that? How do you, um, I guess if you had, if you had to recommend a path or how do you, I guess it's just your personality just um, developing that kind of interpersonal skills that kind of develop your career? The, the business side of it, um, once again, came by accident. It was one of those things where I, once again, didn't talk to anybody. I just started doing it. Um, 
I started early on with my, my trio was Neil Starkey. And this is like, this is, uh, I, I graduated from Georgia State. I moved to New York City. I ran out of money a year and a half later. I came back to live with mom and dad, and now I'm in Atlanta. So I got the best players that, that I could, Bill Anschell on piano and Neil Starkey on bass. And I got, I just, I just went into a, a little restaurant that my girlfriend, who's now my wife, was working at. And she had heard the manager say, we should get some jazz in here. And she said, well, my, my boyfriend plays trumpet. So I went in there and I, I asked the guy if we could play one or two nights a week for like 50 bucks and, and some spaghetti, you know. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and he said, yeah, yeah, sure. So I, I got those guys because I wanted the best musicians. And, and they did the gig with me. And we did Sundays and Wednesdays for a long time. But what started happening was uh, people en enjoyed the music. We played real quiet. They could talk. They could listen to each other speak. And I was... Uh, at an early age, like way back then, I could see that it's important for them to be able to converse with each other. We don't want to be playing so loud that they can't. So I learned that lesson. And then they started asking us, guests would come up and say, hey, you'd be great for our Christmas party, or you'd be great for our daughter's cocktail hour before her wedding, you know. Um, so we started playing gigs like that. And and I put a little contract together. And, uh, and that's kind of how the business side started. And before I knew it, I had seven nights a week of uh, steady gigs. I actually had eight gigs a week at one point. I had, I had every night and then I had a Sunday brunch and Neil Starkey did every single one of them with me. And so did Bill Anschell and, and then Bill moved to Seattle. But uh, Randy Honey took over on guitar, the great Randy Honey. But I mean, that's way back in the day, but that's kind of how the business thing, now I had, a, now I had a, a, a band, a small band, but I had a band. I had to make sure these guys always knew the details and I had to make sure that, that I always got the check. I had to have a bank account. I had to balance the checkbook. You know, that was a, there's a lot of money coming in for a 23 or four year old and a lot of money going out and taxes. Now, how do I deal with that? Yeah. So, you know, and now you got to send 1099. So I learned it all on my own and, and I, I'm, I'm kind of still learning. And, and sometimes we do, I have to write huge contracts, but my big band, you know, we played at the Beau Rivage casino every, every New Year's Eve for four or five years. And that was just a huge contract with all kinds of stipulations. And, 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 uh, and uh, I just kind of plow through it and, and, if I have questions to ask, I'll, I'll ask a lawyer friend or um, something like that. Now, the other side of it, being a uh, being a people person, I, I, I I'm very shy uh, and I'm very antisocial. Like I, I don't I don't like to go. I mean, I like to go out, but I really like being alone, being with my wife, being with my mm -hmm. son, just watching a movie or something like that. But when I am out, I can turn it on, you know. And I yeah, can, that's impressive. <laughs> I, I got that from my father for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've seen I've seen him. I, I don't know if we've ever spoken before, but he looks like a guy who's, you know, he's very suave and you know, a people person too. <laughs> um, you mentioned you mentioned just your the you know the business end of it, networking with people, and I that's when I first saw your big band play at, at two ninety, I think it was, and it was just the amount of audience enthusiasm was shocking to me because like you know, being in the jazz world, there's a lot of you know, you have gigs and you play and like, you know, they're great players and stuff like that, but they're not necessarily engaging with the audience or giving them exactly what they want. And I thought that was impressive that you do that. And that you had, I, ne I don't think I've seen people so enthusiastic. Um, they really love it. You know, so I guess, I guess you just kind of follow, you've kind of, and you balance it, which, is, which I'm impressed by too. Like you balance it. You're not just pandering to the audience. Like you give them stuff they love and you're challenge them with something else. So how do you, how do you approach that? Do you feel like there's a certain, yeah. um, that's trial and error for sure. Yeah, I noticed that early on. I noticed that when the big band started performing, I noticed the enthusiasm from the crowd and the different people that would come out, the the people that weren't necessarily uh, 
the diehard jazz fans, right? These, these, a lot of these people might not even know that much about jazz, but they heard that there was this big band doing Sinatra type stuff and Dean Martin type stuff. So they would come out now and now instead of 20 people in a club, now we're having 200 people in the club and they would go, they would just go crazy. And I could, I could tell if we did giant steps and then Cherokee and then another instrumental, if we did two or three in a row, I could tell I was losing them. I could see it. Now you, there's the diehard people that would love that. But I could see people start checking their phones, people start getting up, go to the bar, people start chatting with each other. And I'm standing right there. And you've been to Cafe Tino, you played in the band a lot. Yeah. You know, the tables are right there in front of me. So I mean I could I could see what they're texting. You know, yeah. so, so I could I, I learned early on that they were that I was losing them. So then we would do a couple Sinatra things and they'd be right back in it. But then I could see the other people were losing the other. We got they want to hear these guys play a little bit too, you know. So you slowly have to figure out your audience. And like you said, you don't really pander to them, but you, but you, uh, you certainly understand the fact that they paid money to come see you and they want to be entertained. And I, I figure I'm an entertainer now. Um, I'm not Miles Davis as much as I wish I was. I'm never going to be that guy that can turn his back to the audience and, 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 and can be so in, in, involved in the music on stage that I don't really have to acknowledge the audience. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing that Miles did, but that but his way of doing things worked for him. Yeah. And I think as a trumpet player, we all wanted to be like a Miles type character, cool and handsome and wear the right clothes and play just the perfect notes every time. And 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 if I want to throw out a vibe, I can throw out a vibe. I'm just not that guy and, and nowhere near that kind of trumpet player. So I figured what if I be what if I kind of focus more on being an entertainer? I can make people laugh a little bit. I can sing some songs they recognize. I can still play. I mean, I'm a decent player, and, and my band is filled with amazing players. So I tried to balance it that way, and it, and fortunately, it really worked. I mean, we don't get on a tour bus and, and travel around the country and, and, and perform all over. I wish we were, but we certainly play plenty of performing arts centers and and sometimes to a 1,000 people, a couple thousand people, and it's a thrill, and we can put together a show that, that there's something there for everybody. Yeah, I mean, I think you're you're uh, underselling your trumpet playing. Your, I mean, your trumpet playing is unbelievable, um, and just and the band is so great. And was, I was always just so impressed by that. Like, I just even if it was, you know, I was just the the, the audience was just out of their seats almost. They're so excited to hear the hear the music, and I was always impressed by that. Um, I, yeah. Um, so what's so you're wearing, you're wearing your hat of your album, which is a great album, by the way. Go get a. I love that. Um, what's what's next for you? Are you recording anything? Are you kind of planning something when the world goes back to normal? You know, I don't know. My 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 normal vibe is to be a step ahead of what I think is next, um, and and have something in the works. And I I'm not I'm not sure yet. I you know I I do a little bit of acting. Um, I have a great agent, uh, the People Store for 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 my acting and. Uh, I did do one scene in the new Jennifer Hudson movie uh, called Respect by Aretha Franklin right before kind of the COVID thing hit. So that was really exciting because I had, a, I had a, one line, but I had a little speaking part. Um, so I might, I might focus a little bit more on that as things you know, kind of come back around. And, and uh, I, I don't want things to change much from where they were before. I want to keep working locally and keep working in the Southeast. Um, I'm hoping and praying that, that Cafe 290 can keep it together and stay open. Yeah, absolutely. That's our home. That's our home. But as far as like some 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 big plan, uh, the only thing that I want to do um, fairly soon is another duo recording with Kenny Banks. We've been talking about it, and uh, 
that's a little bit of an easier undertaking than, than another big band record with 15 new arrangements and rehearsals and all that and, and the amount of money it costs with no record label except an independent label you know mm -hmm. so, and kenny and i'll put something together um fairly soon cool and, cool. Uh, and, and then just, just just hope we all get out of this safely and i know uh, and get back on it i know are you, are you guys playing you guys had a couple duo gigs recently are you um have any anything coming up in the, the next, next yeah month? kenny and i are at rays on the river every saturday night cool uh, at least at least through july and then uh and then we'll see what happens after that but um I have a lot of gigs on the books for August, and they're they're slowly getting pushed months and months back. How about yourself? Yeah, some 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 things are kind of picking up. A couple like weird wedding things, uh, just people who are not or just they're going ahead with their weddings and little cocktail parties, kind of pared down events. Um, I played at the Ritz downtown a couple times last week. They're trying to they're taking baby steps back into booking because I used to play, I played there for a couple years. Um, so they're kind of just trying to see if they can get some music back. Mm -hmm. so, What's it like in there? Are, are guests coming out? It was pretty quiet. I think they had a lot of people. They had more people booked than they expected, so they called and said, "Let's just try it." Um, and then, but there weren't people hanging at the bar that much. That was the thing. People were probably upstairs in their room or whatever. Their their booking was up, but it wasn't in the bar. So it was, you know, it was decent. People people lingered and were happy to hear music. They had commented on that. Just the fact it was a novelty, just hearing live music again. Yeah, I got that at uh, Kenny and I got that at Rays too. You know, most of the time we're there, we're outside by the river unless it's raining. Mm -hmm. and, and there are a lot of people out there eating dinner, and, and they're just they're, they're thankful that there's live music again. I know we take we take it for granted, you know, this beforehand. So yeah, it's 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 just slow. We'll see what happens, but I'm definitely looking forward to you know to hearing you next time um, and hearing the band. I can't wait to hear the band again. We'll fire it up. We'll do something. We did a live stream concert uh, fundraiser for 290 back in May. Oh, cool! The Big Green Egg, man. They 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 kind of sponsored it for us and filmed it, and uh, and it was really really fun. And we raised That's a lot right. of 290 to kind of get through the, the the months where they couldn't open. You know, um, we might do another live stream thing, but but even that now you have to be careful because it's it's you know you're still there together. I mean, you could socially distance, but. You know, you're you're interacting all the time, and sure. how how much is this this virus? You know, in the, is it in the air? You know, who really knows? I think once once they get a vaccine, then we can feel a little more comfortable and, yeah. and hopefully start getting it again. But you probably heard the Vista Room closed. Yeah, the Vista. I heard about the Vista Room, uh, and I'm I'm sure that's not the you know we'll hear about other ones unfortunately, because I just don't, I don't know how unless you have a ton of cash on hand I don't know how you survive, no business for an unknown amount of time, you know? That's the, the that's the, the, the issue that these guys are having and gals is like, do, do we do we dig into our savings to keep this thing afloat? If they knew in three months, boom, we're back to normal, then they could decide if they have enough money to, to float it that long. But they, they how long do they have to float it? Another year? I know, just the unknown. They don't, they don't know. And how, how, how sad is it to have to dig into your retirement and your life savings, especially if you have a family? Sure. If you have no guarantee that that money's not just going out of tubes, and you're gonna have I know. To so it's it's a very very scary thing. I know. And then it, and then at what point do you bring back music? You know, it's like it's one thing to keep the thing on life support, but then t adding on music that's a whole. So a lot of my music, you know, a lot of our friends or a lot of colleagues are, it's just so unknown. You know, as a freelancer, you know, I'm lucky. I with my teaching job, I still have income from that, so that keeps me 
not having to constantly hustle, but there's not anything to hustle out there anyway. So yeah, it's, it's definitely difficult. But um, but man, I, I can't thank you enough. I've taken you, I've taken your time. Um, I know you're really busy, and I just it's it's really it's an honor to to, to talk to you. So thanks. Good man. Go ahead. I appreciate it, man. I'm I'm, I'm glad to be with you. I think this is a this is like a really cool thing you're doing. Thank you so much for listening to episode two of the Atlanta Jazz Notes podcast. Please be sure to check out the website at atlantajazznotes.com and videos of all the podcasts on our YouTube channel. If you like what you heard, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.